0: This is Betatron Investing in Asia, a podcast for people who want to invest in Asia's future. We're talking about Asia outside of China, where 44% of the world's population lives. They are young, they're digital natives, and their buying power is increasing by the day. I'm your host, Arshad Chowdhury, a partner with Betatron Venture Group based in Hong Kong. On this episode, we learn about Asia's meat industry we'll cover supply chain challenges, what is and what is not changing in meat consumption, what kind of funding it takes to launch an alternative meat company, and where the opportunities are for investors. Today's guest is Jaron Stevens, an investor and serial entrepreneur based in Hong Kong. His resume is incredible. So I'll try to name just a few of his companies. He co-founded Stevens & Hollander, which is a consultancy that built one of the first buy-side algorithmic trading engines. He also founded High Stakes, which is a casino gaming consultancy, and he co-founded Meat Market, where they've been selling perishable food, especially meat, online in Hong Kong since 2006. Today, we're going to be looking at the meat industry in Asia, something that Jaren knows quite a bit about. Why don't we dive right in? So Jaren, thanks a lot for joining us today. Great to be here. So I want to start off learning a little, little bit about your journey, specifically related to Meat Market. So you guys have been selling perishable foods online in Hong Kong since 2006, probably way before many others were doing it. Tell me a little bit about that journey and what was it like in the early days and how does that compare to your sales and the process today?
1: Yeah, it all started somewhat on a whim. I had just been on a holiday. I'm I'm an expat based in Hong Kong. I'd been on a holiday in Australia. Whilst there, I'd been to the shops and i bought meat for a barbecue. Then I returned to Hong Kong and the first time for years, I was aware of the price of meat in Australia. My wife sends me to the shops underneath my building. I was working in a big company at the time. And whilst I was down there, I go to buy some produce, go to buy my steaks. I think, wow, they're a bit expensive compared to what I just remember from Australia. And then I got to the counter to pay and I realized, oh my good, that's the price for hundred grams, not a kilo. So then I started working backwards, right? I did the maths. Okay, we take out shipping, take out the zero taxes in Hong Kong. Where's all the money? It's all rent and profit in in Hong Kong and the meat space. So I thought, okay, well, let's get rid of rent and go with an e-commerce model and see what we can do here. So the business began on the kitchen table and there was at the time one other company doing e-commerce in Hong Kong and it was a wholesaler that just did fish and they really just sold whatever they hadn't been able to sell through their wholesale channels. So we were the first really to have a, a proper perishable goods e-commerce business here and it was you know we had the rush of our first friends and families uh, turning up and that went dead quiet didn't sell anything for a month it was horrifying I was still working and we built this website overnight you know on my weekends and then bit by bit it started to pick up and we realized that the biggest thing about perishable goods e-commerce more than any other space of of e-commerce is that your supply lines are customer-facing, but they really, really, truly are. Because it's perishable, everything has to happen now. You get a couple of hours, right? Tops of managing your cold chain with breaks. So therefore you have to have this incredibly slick supply line. To do same-day delivery, for example, requires same-day butchery, requires same-day supply, requires uh, a demand pattern matching right, right down to your supply lines and just-in-time supply. Now, just-in-time supply doesn't really work well in perishable goods because, well, cows and and fish and other animals don't really comply to just-in-time demands, right? You've got to cut them up in a certain way and they grow in a certain pattern and there are droughts and all sorts of things. So what we realized was that we had to build out this incredible supply capability. And that's what we focused on first was was not really so much the customer-facing side, we were quite different to what you conventionally taught around e-commerce we started with supply lines and creating a just-in-time model right from the paddock to to the plate and then over the years we just got better and better and better at that and and now of course there are many competitors in Hong Kong new competitors every year and they tend to be around for one to two years and then they fall off because anyone can launch a website but to get that Complete end-to-end just-in-time logistics for perishable goods with an unbroken cold chain is very, very challenging.
0: Wow, that's awesome! And how has the supply chain changed since when you first started to now? And do you have to own much of that yourself?
1: Yeah, good question. We tried every version of that model. We, we tried owning it all ourselves. We tried outsourcing it, and then it would get subcontracted out and sub- Ends up no one knowing where the burger went. We, we tried everything, and none of it worked until we finally got to a I would call it in-sourcing model, meaning that we have a delivery fleet and logistics and supply lines that are external parties. They run their own books; they're profitable businesses in their own right. But we are 90% of their business, so they're welcome to go and work for others who are not our competitors. We supply a lot of their infrastructure, their fixed assets, and we deal with the financing of that. And in return, they work primarily for us and not with any of our competitors. And through that, we've been able to get a very stable supply chain and they get great businesses.
0: Got it. And did you ever raise any outside capital from professional investors or has this been bootstrapped?
1: Mainly bootstrapped. There was one loan, right, one personally guaranteed loan in the very early days. We talk to a lot of investors, and we periodically talk to them now. We do get inbound interest in the business. It's a mature business and a, and a good cash flow business, sort of being food. But no, we bootstrap primarily this business. I've been involved in financed businesses outside of this. But for this particular business, we prefer to bootstrap it and the whole thing.
0: I love that. And as somebody who has run my own bootstrap businesses that are 100% of privately held. I totally see the value in it. And especially when you have revenue or you have a healthy business, taking in outside money sometimes feels like you can be snatching defeat from the jaws of success.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was sorely tempted many times as I watched well-funded competitors turn up on my doorstep, but we decided to weather the storm and see if they would survive. Some of them did. Some of our fiercest competitors were off the back of an incredible amount of funding that almost guaranteed they would get some market share and they've been able to hold it together but even they come to us these days and ask us you know how do you do your logistics and try to find the secret source? so very tempting but for this one we wanted it to be ours
0: have you thought about expanding to any markets outside of hong kong
1: yeah we we tried three types of market expansion we we went into macau and tried to do wholesale with the casinos that lasted maybe a year it was just very competitive Uh, wholesale margins were just so tight we gave up on that we also tried launching the consumer brand in macau that had more velocity and great margins but logistics at the time in macau were not great and it was owned by a i would call it an oligopoly of families that own all of the local transport logistics at that time that may have changed now so we retreated from that eventually it was hard to be cost-effective and we also did a a limited amount of cross-border stuff into southern china which was usually based around expats who'd been stationed up there and, and were looking for a way to, to get produce in. But there are a lot of logistics challenges with with turning that into a viable business. We would, we would really have to relaunch a new operation that is completely independent of the home base operation in Hong Kong to make that work.
0: Right. Wow. And so we are in Hong Kong, thankfully seeing very few COVID cases on a day-to-day basis. Now it feels like we're close to the other side of this as, vaccines are being rolled out. Tell me what happened to the business and to buying patterns during COVID. And have you seen any changes among your customers that might be permanent? COVID
1: has been a terrible thing for most of the world, but wonderful for anyone who's in home delivery, e-commerce, food, or any staple, really, anything that you absolutely have to have. So our sales went through the roof. I won't give numbers, but you know they went really went high. But much better than that was the basket sizes went up dramatically. We had a lull here in Hong Kong where everyone was over, right? COVID's gone. We're all good. There were two or three months. The government released the restrictions, relaxed the restrictions. We all went out and partied and people started going back to restaurants and, and didn't cook at home as much. Of course, we saw our volumes go down and that was a bit of a test for us. Will they return to their old levels? Will they dip below the old levels as people revel and party? Actually, they dropped down, but we found that of the gains that we made during the COVID era, about half of them were were sticking around. People's buying patterns have changed. So two things have changed. One was people have gotten used to the idea of buying their staples online, and 25% more of them are doing it. And the basket sizes are about, let's call it 80% higher than they used to be, which is uh, anyone who's into into e-commerce metrics knows basket sizes are how you live or die in this game. So the the nature of Hong Kong buying, that idea that I can get anything I want downstairs at the the store just downstairs because I live in these incredibly concentrated residential areas, that's changed. People, even though they can still do that, want the guy delivering it to their door.
0: I think we've seen that across many of our startups at Betatron, which is many have thrived because they're only online. I, I noticed that you guys have recently launched a whole line of meat alternatives or alternative proteins. When did you introduce that? And why did you introduce a line of alternative proteins?
1: So this is one that's close to my heart. For us here in Hong Kong, pork and seafood, but what we're finding is that tastes are changing. People are starting to towards healthier eating, but it hasn't picked up the momentum that has picked up in some other countries. We, we started to receive requests, usually from our top 20% of customers in terms of value for meat alternatives, protein alternatives, a lot of families. And it usually starts with one of the, the younger people in the family, one of the kids hit their teens. I'm not eating the meat anymore. I want to try a different way of living. So we started to get requests on this. We reached out and there were no supply lines in Hong Kong anywhere for protein substitutes that were of any real substance finally it started to turn up in the last 12 months we got access to a few of those lines and we put them up on the site and i would say about five percent of our volume now from zero percent 12 months ago is in protein substitutes and we're getting more and more interest around that space if i look at our website metrics a lot of the clicks are on that space even if people don't buy there's clearly a lot of interest in adding that to the basket eventually i think the Bigger story here is that in countries outside of Hong Kong that are perhaps where we have a lot fewer traditional buyers, you know, that people experiment a lot more and get on trend with food a lot more. We're seeing a much larger movement towards protein substitutes. But at the same time, we should be clear that overall protein consumption from animals is, has not gone down. If anything, in Asia as a a whole, it's going through the roof. It's quite the opposite of the story that Impossible Foods and others would have you think. The meat substitutes are making a dent, but usually not in the space that traditional animal-based meats occupy. It tends to be replacing other foods instead of meat. So to give you some statistics here around Asia, the top meat eaters in the world are the Australians, you go Australia, and the US, where people eat essentially half a cow a year if we exclude seafood. When you talk about China, people eat half of that. So they're eating a quarter of a cow a year equivalent. And aspirationally, the middle class in China is the fastest growing population on the planet. If you were to call them a country, the middle class, they are the fastest growing population on the planet. If they have this aspiration to, to get to that 80 to 100 percent which is where most of the west is you know of, of half a cow then that means we literally have to double our capacity to create meat we can't actually do that mathematically there's not enough arable land there's not enough fresh water there's not enough of any of the pieces we need to be able to do that so meat substitutes do have a game to play and they're going to become i think the main source of protein within my lifetime because we literally can't make enough meat otherwise. And just with Asia itself, just Asia, we haven't even talked about the rise of Africa. We haven't talked about what's going on in South America. We haven't talked about many of the still young countries that exist in in Eastern Europe, right, the young populations. We haven't talked about the explosive middle classes that, that are coming next out of those countries. We're still just focusing on Asia. Just with Asia's middle-class growth, we can't make enough protein globally for them to have hit that aspirational goal of matching Western protein consumption levels.
0: Wow. Tell me a little bit about which is more difficult to sell, actually, in terms of the logistics of doing so. Traditional meat with its supply chain issues and requiring all the logistics of cold chain or the alternative meats. And then second, in terms of the margins on these products, is there a difference?
1: There's a massive difference, yeah. I mean, the two most perishable goods in the world, you know, electricity and meat, right? Electricity, we, 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 you know, we've got the Elon Musks of the world coming up with battery technology to solve that problem. We can store electricity. It's almost a non-perishable now. But when we start to get into meat, we're still lo- using a lot of very traditional mechanisms, right? You still need a freezer uh, that goes minus 20, right? You still need a fridge that goes minus 2 or, you know, up to 4. You still need all of these things in an unbroken transport chain to be able to get full lifetime out of out of any uh, out of most means. So the logistics involved, and the energy consumption, and the complexity of the supply chain, especially when we go back to that original piece around e-commerce, demand-driven e-commerce, where you know everything has to be just in time, it becomes incredibly expensive. It, it multiples the cost of sending out an iPhone. In terms of the logistics cost, you know, something that is just non-perishable, and in Asia generally, that supply chain, that cold chain, has has up until I would say a couple of years ago been pretty rustic. A lot of breaks in the supply chain. So Macau, when the casinos opened up in Macau and everyone flooded in and enjoyed these glitzy casinos and lavish banquet tables, nearly all of that produce was being shipped over from Hong Kong, all of the fresh produce, on open air barges with ice buckets because they they didn't have any enough power to handle refrigeration for most produce. If people knew that their oysters were turning up and they have been out in the sun all day in an ice bucket, which is maybe just enough, you know, to get it in, they'd be horrified. But that was all that was really available. And that's Hong Kong, a fairly mature economy. And when we go into other parts of the world, it's other parts of Asia, it's obviously a, a, a worse story with big breaks in the cold chain. China, incidentally, has done a lot of great work. And in the last few years in particular, the cold chains in China are now world-class in many areas especially on the east coast. If you go inland of course it gets a bit rustic but certainly it's gotten a lot better. Now if we compare that to meat substitutes you know depending on the nature of the meat substitute they can be on the shelf in a vacuum packed bag for two years without any um, refrigeration. Some of them you can't do that because uh, certain types of bacteria and so forth are used which you know which don't allow you know they start to assume characteristics somewhat similar to meat you know, organic oils and so forth that will rot, that bacteria can prosper in you know, without refrigeration. But as a general rule, some of the newer things we're seeing like um, algae and so forth, crickets, believe it or not, all these other these newer forms of protein, you, you can store them for a very, very long time without having to worry about refrigeration. So, it's a, you know, when you think about food loss, in, with all of these cold chains, it is estimated that up to 50% of the value of what is shipped from the farm ends up getting wasted through the various breaks or wastage in that coal chain, most of which is due to you know, the challenge of
0: perishable logistics. Looking forward, it seems like you are spending more and more time and energy looking into the alternative meat space. Tell me a little bit about how you think about it as an investor. Where are the opportunities and where do you think you'll be spending most of your time? So I, I
1: think this space is the space for the next 20 years. We're talking about regional food security, not global food security. Food security used to be, I have great supply lines with other countries, but then COVID taught us that you can't rely on those. Countries will compete to be safe. So the big push right now is for any country that is a net importer of Mm -hmm. calories, those countries now want regional food security, whether that is a stated ambition or whether it is an ambition that they are acting on in various ways. What that means is that there is this almost government-mandated globally pool of money starting to turn up to go into both economically and ecologically sustainable replacements for the way that we do food now with a regional food security angle. No one wants to work with the best expert in the world in the US who has these wonderful farms that can produce all of this incredible produce using, you know, only 10% of the water and no pesticides and all of these wonderful new technologies for climate-controlled farms, which are more like manufacturing plants these days. But no one cares over here so much because I want to know when there is a trade war, when COVID kicks up, when there are political tensions, I want to know that I can feed my people here. So we're seeing an explosion of investment in climate-controlled farms. and and the auxiliary technologies and business practices around them. My direction at the moment is the auxiliary technologies. There's a lot of wonderful IP. It's moving throughout the world. So IP that is able to be portable, and that IP has to be based around using far less water for a given output of calories and protein in, in particular.
0: So what's an example of an auxiliary technology or service?
1: Sure. So... You know there's one i'm working on right now which i won't give the details because there's some proprietary stuff in here but you know now one of them is an, an algae that can produce omega-3 oils and protein the two if you like byproducts outputs using specialized ponds it's brackish salt water and it produces all of this at a at a cost level that it wipes out every technology that's available on the market right now so the model for, for businesses like this tends to be prove the technology with the first installation, which costs you know, 10, 25 million, whatever it is, right? Prove that first model, get it working, show the numbers. Usually these businesses have offtake agreements and have sold all of their produce for the next two years before they even break ground. Then they go on a licensing mission and they do deals with international governments and commercial farms who want to also build these, these incredible farms. So what you end up with is this endless protein supply, for example, that, that requires no fresh water, salt water only, can pull it out of groundwater. It actually uh, takes pollutants out of the air, if anything. Uh, it, it is, you know, most food import-export around the world can really be seen as the import and export of fresh water supplies, right? But China imports so much mostly because 80% of the water is undrinkable, you know, it's the biggest problem in China. With these sorts of farming techniques, that becomes irrelevant. So technologies around, in and around that space of of that nature that can completely change the way that we do farming, that we produce proteins are wonderful, but right now, are you ready? Well, you're a vegan, so maybe not, but you know, your meat eating friends ready to eat a slightly green powder for their protein, right? Are they, are they ready to fortify their existing vegetables? With protein and in some clearly, you know, it's like adding salt on your meal. You put some protein on your meal, right? It's it's slightly green. It has an, a dam, a damami taste, right? Like the Japanese and you know, are you ready for that culturally? Are we ready for that? Can I at meat market that? Can I sell that? That's the big challenge here. Is we've got to get to the point where people are ready to actually buy it. The technology is emerging right now, but the consumer side is another space that I'm looking to head down and invest in, because or the branding side, you know, we need more than cultural change. We need people to feel like they're doing something good for themselves that it tastes fantastic, you know, and they're not giving, they're not sacrificing. And We need to find ways to do that. And most of the, the businesses that are in this space right now are led by incredibly smart people who absolutely know how to build these amazing production facilities and have incredible science and engineering behind them But when it's time to go to market, they really don't know where to start. So they end up just selling it upstream to the existing incumbent players in nutraceuticals and other spaces and haven't quite worked out how to crack the food space, what we eat every day. So that's the space I'm focusing on as well, is helping these
0: guys to get to market. Now, it seems like creating an alternative meat-based business could be quite capital intensive because... There's all the lab expense, there's the, the raw materials, there's the production, the testing, the distribution, all of that. And that's before you start marketing it. Right? So where do the dollars come from for that? Are there investors in Asia who are supporting alternative meat production?
1: Yeah, it's very capital intensive. So you're spot on. The way to think of it is it's like building a manufacturing plant as distinct from a broad acre farm with a broad acre farm. You clear some trees off of some land that's hopefully already nutrient and water-rich land, and then you build some basic infrastructure, and then you wait for your crops to grow or your animals to grow. So it's quick to build your infrastructure and relatively cheap, and then there's this long wait for your crops to grow, for your vines to grow, your animals to grow. You wait a year anyway, right? The manufacturing-based, you know, climate control technology-based investments, the way they work is... It takes a year to build the facility, but as soon as you turn it on, you're producing output and you're producing it at a much higher rate per square meter. So one year down the track, you're pretty much in the same position. Two years down the track, you're cash flow positive, well and truly. But that one year is, as you pointed out, very capital intensive. So a you know, facility that is worth having is likely to cost you between 10 and 25 million US dollars, or maybe we should just say 10 million up. Because you can absolutely put $250 million into incredible facilities. So yeah, the profile of it is more like infrastructure investments. So then you say, all right, well, who wants to invest in infrastructure investments? I haven't seen many funds targeted in this space coming out of Asia yet. Some exist, but yeah, I haven't seen any gigantic, truly focused funds in this space. There are funds that are around buying farmland. They still exist. It's all about the asset but there aren't many that are around this climate-controlled farming and, and auxiliary technologies. Most of that money is coming out of the US and Europe. But in China, we're seeing what I would call mid-to-low-tech farms and big-scale ones popping up. And so there are some partnerships with, with large Japanese firms, partnerships with large Korean firms and so forth going on. And, but again, it tends to be that the big chaebols all working together from the various jurisdictions rather than traditional VC you know, funding.
0: Well, this has been amazing. I have learned a ton from this. Is there anything else you'd like our, our listeners to, to know about before we let you We will have been successful when
1: your child wants to eat a veggie burger. We've got to get to that point.
0: Got it. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you.